Well, good morning, and uh, let me add my welcome to Nick's and the others. I'm Marshall Brown, the senior pastor. I'll be teaching on uh, part of the passage that Liz just read for us. I do want to call your attention to one other announcement on page 12. You don't need to turn there. You can see this. If you're a parent, you should be getting this information. Um, but we're offering a, a seminar uh, for parents, and I guess suppose grandparents, uh, for parents and, to, uh, and grandparents to help disciple and lead their children uh, through the changing landscape of our culture regarding uh, human sexuality and maybe especially uh, gender. So this seminar is going to be on November 12th. Uh, from 9 to 11.30 in the West Hall, you can RSVP, child care is available. Uh, speakers will include myself, Chris Colquitt, and our own uh, Dr. Uh, Jessica Katz, who has a PhD in philosophy. There will also be a panel uh, with just parents of different aged children as we navigate what is a, a changing landscape, a different landscape, and an important one, important conversation. So if you're interested, I hope you can join us on November 12th. Again, the details are on page 12, uh, and you can RSVP and sign up for child care and all that good stuff. Let me pray before we look at this important passage of God's Word. God, I suppose every week I stand here and uh, am insufficient, but especially in front of this text, uh, you must speak and we must hear. God, we need this message, the message of freedom, of justification, of righteousness in and from you. And so, God, I pray for all of us, no matter where we are this morning, whatever we have brought into this sanctuary, our doubts, our hopes, our fears, our hurts, our joys. I pray that you would meet us, Lord Christ, in the preaching of your word. Would you do this for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, I do hope you keep your Bible in front of you or the scripture reading as it's printed in the bulletin. And even as you heard Liz read just a moment ago, I want you to kind of glance your eyes back over that passage. Romans 3, especially verses 21 to 26, okay, 321 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And I want you just to think, you know, uh, how important do those words, how important do those words seem? Like, you know, on a scale of 1 to 100, just kind of give yourself a mental uh, uh, score to that. How important do these words uh, seem in the rest of the Bible, in the rest of history, Frack? Let me give you a couple, uh, what a couple of scholars and one preacher have said about this paragraph. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, said this. Romans 3, 21 to 26 is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Uh, Don Carson, a name known to some of you. Don actually lives just north of us. Uh, he's a professor at TEDS or was emeritus now. Uh, he calls this paragraph the center of the whole Bible. Romans 3, 21 to 26. This is the center of the whole Bible. And Tim Keller, a name that is uh, quoted often uh, from this pulpit, uh, says this. Uh, Romans 3 and 4 is Paul's summary of what the Bible is about. This is the heart, he said, I'm quoting Keller still, the heart of the heart of the message. Okay? Now Romans 3 beginning in verse 21 and chapter 4 is really just examples, not just, but examples of what I'm going to talk about today. Using the life of David and the life of Abraham. But this is a, a text that is about justification by faith. 
through grace by faith. Now, we're in the second part of a sermon series called Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. We've looked first at half of fall at the life of Jacob as an illustration of grace. And now we're looking at Romans as the explanation of grace. And no passage better explains grace than Romans 3, 21 to 26. Now, as along the way, we have defined grace as, I hope this registers, I say it every week in the hopes that it'll kind of register. You're like, if I could wake you in the middle of the night and, you know, shake your foot and you'd say, what is grace? You unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by unobligated God, uh, who, who, which slowly but surely changes us. That's how we define grace. And again, today's passage is where we'll focus is this is how grace works. Romans 3, 21 to 26 is how grace works. It shows us how an unobligated God unconditionally accepts undeserving persons. To use the text, I could use several passages. Verse 24, this shows us how we are justified by his grace as a gift. That's verse 24. Grace is the source, but justification by faith, grace through faith, is what happens. It's how it happens. This is a sermon about justification. Last week, Nick preached about the bad news. This week is the very best news possible. The very best news possible that we find in the scripture. I do want to remind you uh, that understanding Romans is a bit difficult. It takes some work. Uh, I've used the illustration of taking apart an engine and building it back together. There's some technical language uh, today that we're going to have to go through. I hope you're following along with the reading Romans plan that is in the bulletin where you can read along and kind of go over it again and again to get some of the ideas. And you'll never fully get it, by the way. I don't. Uh, but this morning I want to talk about justification, the significance of justification, the accomplishment of justification, and then third, God be with us, the experience of justification. First, the significance of justification. Now, you need to see something, and you're, you pay attention to the Bible. This word takes some work here, okay? Uh, the, biblically, the words righteousness and justify or justification that you see in this passage, they come from the same Greek word, dikeo, okay? Now, they're used differently, but they're from the same root word. They're very closely connected, okay? Just look with me. It's worth taking the time. If you're taking notes, uh, sir, if you're writing down, think, write this down. Verse 21, you see the righteousness of God. That could be both justification, justice, or righteousness. The same thing in verse 22, but the righteousness of God. The same word root occurs in verse 24, you're justified by his grace. In verse 25, the word occurs again uh, to show God's righteousness. And then in verse 26, the root word occurs three times. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. So circle all those words. That, those, those words are all related to one another, all related to this Greek word dikeo, okay? Now, to understand this word group, I want to use three pictures and one word that get at the biblical idea of justice, justification, righteousness. Three word pictures and one word. Okay, the first word, uh, word picture is, is a moral report card. What is righteousness? Righteousness is like a moral report card. This is the idea of measuring up. Do you make the grade morally? Now, if we stop there... Uh, righteousness is a pretty negative idea in our culture, right? Okay, we're just, just being moral. That is not a very positive idea. But the idea is so, it includes this. Don't skip over this. But the idea is so much bigger. So it's not just a moral report card. It is secondly like a passport. 
A statement of identity and belonging that grants you all the rights and privileges of the issuing body. If you travel internationally, one of my favorite moments coming back to America is you hand your passport to the gate agent, to the, to the agent coming back in, the, the customs agent, and what do they say? Welcome home. You are welcome here. And that's what righteousness is. It is a passport that says you're welcome. You're accepted. You are part of us. But the third picture, the third picture I want to use for righteousness is that of a resume. What is a resume or a CV? It is a list of your accomplishment that you give to someone that opens doors for you. That opens doors for you because of what you have achieved or what's been achieved on your behalf. You have an opportunity. So it's like a report card. It's like a passport and a resume all rolled up in one. But maybe better than three images is one word. Biblical righteousness, biblical justification is about being enough. It's about enoughness. Okay, so you could, I, I, I don't want to play with the text here, but this is, Paul is saying that if you are justified by faith, you are enough. Enough. Last week I was away because I was at my 30th high school reunion. 30th high school reunion. Now, that's a good time. It's fun for me to introduce Allison. We, I'd skipped my last one. And so take Allison, introduce her to some of my old friends. And as a preacher, I just thought, man, this event is loaded with illustrations. Um, I hope you go to your class reunions. Now, the number one illustration from a class reunion is the event itself. Because we go for good reasons, right? Maybe it's local for you, but for me, it's traveling a great to about Dallas, Texas to see old friends. To honor the place that formed us, the people who formed us. To honor the past. You know, and I will say this, having gone to two, now I went to my 10-year and now my 30-year. Each one gets a little bit more chill and relaxed. People aren't strutting about just, just as much. But still, when you go to your high school reunion, there's a question on everyone's mind. How do I stack up? Am I enough? And you're looking around, you know, who's kept the weight off and the hair on? You know? <laughs> Who's had the most cool experiences? Who's made the money? Who has successful children? I have friends who have kids that are like 25 and like working in New York. I have a seven-year-old. Uh, who's been successful? Who's been, this is probably not true at Northwestern or at New Trier, but in my class, who's been the greatest slacker? Like, you know, like that's actually an achievement to be the greatest slacker. But we're all asking, am I enough? Am I enough? Is my life justified thus far? You see, friends, we're all trying to justify our existence. We all are. We're all trying to justify our existence. And some of us do it with religion, keeping the rules, doing the religious thing, the right thing. Some of us do it with actually trying to be right, the social justice workers, working for care, for justice. Then there's the secular attempts to justify our existence. Sometimes these are more pernicious because they're less defined than the religious ones. The need to look interesting to people around you, the need to be funny, they need to have a successful career, a big balance sheet, a big income, successful children, an attractive in every sense spouse to justify our existence. And all of us feel this. Even if you're a slacker, you feel this. There's this inner, this inner murmur that says, are you doing enough? Is your existence justified? We have this incessant need to prove ourselves. We have a need to be righteous, <laughs> to be justified. But you know this without me even telling you, all our attempts at righteousness, they're never enough. <laughs> we want to be enough, but they're never enough. All our strategies fail. And why do our strategies fail? Why? 
They don't work because there is a God. (laughs) And his standard is perfection. It is righteousness. And he has put eternity into all of our hearts, a longing to be enough. And even if you are here this morning and you don't acknowledge God, there is something in each of us that wants more, that wants to be enough. And so often we're trying to solve a vertical problem with horizontal achievements like Horizontal solutions like achievement. We have a God-shaped void. And those horizontal achievements, they're never enough. Romans 3.23, look with me, says it. This echoes what Nick would have said last week and it diagnoses the problem. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that word sin, yet does that have in mind things like envy and adultery and murder? The Ten Commandments that we confessed earlier this morning? Yes, of course. But there's something deeper and something more. It's not just the things we do. We were designed to have a right relationship with the eternal God. We were built to have a right standing. But that has been broken and we have broken it. Nothing can be right if that is wrong. There's never enough. So the report card comes back failed. The passport is revoked. The resume is shredded. We are not enough. So justification is hugely significant, and we all want it. And friends, there is great news. It has been accomplished for us. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God has been manifested. What does that mean? Let's look secondly at the accomplishment of justification. Two weeks ago, we said about righteousness of God. It's an attribute of God. It's an activity. But in this context, it is a gift that God gives us righteousness. And so often Christians miss this. We think that salvation is just about having our sins forgiven. And that's part of it, but it's not the whole. So Paul gives us three images and then a demonstration. Okay, Now this is going to get a little bit technical. I know it's warm in here. I'm about to take my jacket off, but stay with me for just a moment. I'm going to move quickly, but this is super important. Because Paul gives us three images. The first image is the image of justification. You see at several places that we are justified, verse 24, by his grace. What that means, quite simply, is that those who are guilty are declared innocent or righteous. Okay? Now, if you're paying attention, this should be offensive. Right? What do we do with judges who acquit guilty people? We impeach them. We remove them from office, and yet it says here God is justifying the ungodly. God is justifying people who have offended, okay? This is offensive. Let it sit with you. Secondly, the second image is not just a courtroom where you're declared righteous, even though you are guilty. The second image is of a marketplace, the image of redemption. The rest of verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a marketplace. It is an economic term. It's the image of someone who is enslaved, whose freedom is being purchased by another. You're like, I'm not enslaved. I'm not, you know, that's an old idea. That's an old religious idea, you know, guilt and shame. That's not, I'm free to be me. Well, that is true because what is, we are free. What the gospel does for us is it purchases us from our freedom and sets us free to finally be ourselves. Because all those things that we're doing to try to make our enoughness, our justify our existence, all these things we're doing... We're not free. We're enslaved to that God. And he is saying here, the Apostle Paul is saying that we are free. We have been redeemed from that if we would but believe it. 
that's attractive to modern people, the idea that we can, I can be free to finally be myself. The third image is a little more concerning. It's a temple image, propitiation by his blood. I mean, this is not modern, is it? Verse 24, uh, redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There's so much to be said here. If you have questions, please talk to me. But let me just say this. Forgiveness is never free. Forgiveness is never free. No matter what the situation, if I harm you in some way, if I take from you, there's two choices you have. Either you harm me back and evil wins, or you forgive me and you bear the harm. You bear the hurt. You bear the loss yourself. You see, friends, when there is evil, when there is sin, someone has to pay. Someone has to suffer. The wages of sin is death, Paul will say three chapters later. And God is angry with sin, and the payment he demands for sin, he pays with his own blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. Now, it's in 20, 2022 on the North Shore of Chicago, I always get a little uncomfortable. Even when we have worship planning sessions, and there's a song that talks about the blood, I'm like, well, if we're going to talk about the blood, we've got to explain the blood. Because it's just offensive to our ears. But the freedom is not, I mean, forgiveness is not free. And God pays, though, with his own blood. This is actually the best news possible. That Jesus has died for us. It is offensive to modern ears, but it was offensive to first century ears. That someone stood in our place suffering for us. God pays with his own blood, the blood of his son. So those are the three images, but gets us to the fourth which is the one that is so compelling to me. And it's this idea that God demonstrates his righteousness. Look with me at verse 26. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one that has faith in Jesus. Here is the crux of the issue. God is just. And to countenance injustice is not within his character. God can't just wipe it away like with a racer, right? He can't just say, no, it's gone. And yet God is also compassionate and merciful. God is love. So how do you reconcile that God is both just and that God is love? The only way that that can be demonstrated is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because we see the fullness, 100% of God's justice, but we also see the fullness of God's love. And they meet in the person of Jesus. It is the demonstration of who God is. Perfectly just and perfectly loving and gracious. There's no halfway. Which means that you and I are the canvas on which God demonstrates his masterpiece. We're the canvas on which God demonstrates his masterpiece. How else could he show the fullness of his love and the fullness of his justice? Except in the cross of Jesus, which he gives to us. This, friends, is the accomplishment of justification. The accomplishment of justification that our enoughness has been accomplished for us by the work of Jesus. And this is, the, this is this, I know this is offensive, and this is the last thing I'm going to say about this is also offensive. All we have to do is receive it by faith. Okay, faith is not a work, right? Faith is the end of yourself. It's an emptying of yourself. You see, the key to faith is not the worthiness or the strength of what you believe. I mean, it is the strength of what you believe. It's not your belief. It's what you believe into. 
Tim Keller, speaking of, has a great illustration of this. He said, if you have great confidence and you work out and you get very strong and you put wings on yourself and you're going to fly to London, you can have all the strength and confidence, but you're not going to get there, right? It doesn't matter how strong your faith is, your, your, your wings are. But if you also, to extend the metaphor, if in fear and dread and weakness you climb onto a 747 jet, you're going to get to London. That's what faith is. Faith is not about what we believe. It is about what we believe into. And that is the work of Jesus. The key is the faith is not the strength of the belief. It is the strength of what is believed. So hear this. This is from John Stott. Christianity is not in its essence a religion at all. Christianity is not a religion. It is a gospel. It is a good news that God's grace has turned away his wrath, that God's son has died our death and borne our judgment, that God has mercy on the undeserving, and there is nothing left for us to do or even contribute. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. End quote. You see, friends, every religion, including secularism, says that we prepare a record. We attempt to justify our existence to God. And whether that God is the, an actual God, Hindu or whatever, or the God of success, or the appearance, or slackerism, whatever your God is, all, of, all other religions say you prepare a record and you take it to God. But Christianity says a record has been prepared for you and it is given to you. His report card, his resume, his passport, his enoughness is on offer from him. It is a gift. It is a gift. And we have a choice to either accept the acceptance, the justification that is ours because of what Christ has done, or we keep trying to earn our own justification. So what will it be? What will it be? Can you accept the acceptance, the enoughness that Jesus offers as a gift? Now, friends, I knew in writing this sermon that this would not be my most eloquent or artful sermon. I knew that. And, but I will say this. I do think this is one of the more important sermons that I've ever given because it gets to the heart of the heart of the heart of the message that God is both fully just and fully loving. And in the person of Christ, it is reconciled and on offer for us that you can be justified because of what God has done for you. So let's look briefly in closing at the experience of justification. We've talked about the significance of justification, the accomplishment. Let's talk briefly about the experience of justification. Because the more this message, this truth gets into your bones, it sets you free. You no longer have anything to prove. You don't have anything to earn. And also you have nothing to lose. The more this gets into your bones, whatever past failures you have, whatever present failures you have, they can no longer crush you because you are enough in Christ. You're no longer harsh in your criticism or judgmental to other people. They don't measure up because you understand that it's all your enoughness has been given to you. The more you understand that you are enough because of what Jesus has done for you, you can take criticism. You're not brittle around criticism. You don't need to protect your reputation because Jesus has said you are enough. You don't have to take yourself too seriously. You can laugh at yourself. You are free. 
One of the uh, people in my life who, probably the person who taught me this most clearly was my RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt all those many years ago. And he used to say, he used to say, people would come up to him and criticize him. I can't believe you think this or do this or believe this. You're such an awful person. And he, had, he, he's, he understood this deep in his bones. He'd say, you know what? You're right. And you don't know the half of it. He knew that he was enough before Jesus, so he didn't have to defend himself. He knew that he had the righteousness from God. And as you understand that, you can be courageous. You can actually rest and stop working. You can be humble. You can forgive people. You can welcome people. When you get this in your bones, you actually can live serendipitously. You can be open to everybody because you know you're enough. And so nothing threatens you. You can laugh at yourself. You can dance like no one is watching. I think that's a great demonstration for just, uh, image for justification. You can dance like no one is watching because you know you're enough. Now, I wish it were that easy. I wish, I thought to my, I mean, this sermon is for me. And I was thinking this morning, like, how do I experience justification? And I'm going to do something I've never done before. This might not work. I listened to a podcast this week, which is always dangerous before a sermon. Uh, a guy I'd never listened to before. And he, he does something like this. And I just want to do this as a thought experiment. Maybe this will help you. It helped me. And he has the idea that you are standing before Jesus who is saying you're enough. You're accepted. And you're standing before, and if, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, actually just imagine that you're standing before unconditional love and unconditional acceptance. You can put a face on it or not. But this can work for you as well. Think about this. If you're a Christian, think about this before Jesus. If you don't know what you think about Jesus, imagine that it's unconditional love and unconditional acceptance. And as you're standing before this presence, let yourself rest in that presence. And then imagine you're thinking of all the roles in your life, and you're rating yourself in all the roles of your life. Parent, spouse, worker, human being. And let me just ask you, first of all, what do you say about yourself when you think of yourself as a parent, as a spouse, as a human being, as a child, as a student, as a worker? When you think about yourself, I would be willing to bet that most of us think, ah, I could do better. I, I'll, do, I'll do better. But I want you to imagine thinking all those things, rating yourself, and you're standing before unconditional love. You're standing before Jesus. You know what he says to you? You're enough. You are enough. You are enough. You're enough. You are righteous in my sight because of what I have done for you. You're forgiven your sins. You're declared righteous. You're accepted. You're given the passport, the report card. You're given all of it. And he says, you are enough. So whatever it is for you, take all those different roles and take them before Jesus or unconditional love, whatever it is. Take them before him and listen to what he says. You are enough. But now, the best words in scripture, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested to us. Let me pray. Our great God, this message is deeply offensive to our sensibilities and our self-worth, but it is deeply glorifying to you, and if we'll hear it, satisfying to our souls. I pray, God, that you would help us to know that because of what you are done, we are righteous in your sight. The gift you have given, we are enough. For Christ's sake, 
Amen.